Yeah, so I think it would be great if we could do away with that. In fact, I mean, when we look at the origins of the word, virus was Latin for poison. And that's really what we're what we're getting at, I think, with a lot of this is we're we're being poisoned by a lot of different types of toxins on different levels. And yet we want to boil it down to one tiny particle that may or may not exist and say that that's the cause of all the problems. <laughs> Greetings and love, beautiful humans. It's Ben Hardy, co-host of the Terrain Theory Podcast. This week, my co-host Mike Miranda and I brought another Mike, Mike Donio, onto the show. Mike Donio is a scientist with experience in virology, cell biology, biochemistry, and more. There isn't a single person we've had on the show to date as qualified to talk about science and the state of science as Mike Donio. And that's exactly what we got into. What is science? What's happened to science? How do we fix it? Can it be fixed? Spoiler alert, he has some strong opinions on virology specifically. So if you're still walking around wearing a mask, worried about catching a germ, you may want to take a deep breath before continuing. Well, as deep a breath as that useless thing will allow. Lastly, if you're liking the podcast, please consider leaving a review and or sharing with a friend or someone you love. Or someone you don't love. Maybe just someone who would enjoy or benefit from listening. We think that's everyone. But, you know, bias. All right, let's get on to the show. Welcome back to Terrain Theory. All right, we are live. Mike Donio, welcome to the Terrain Theory podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. Can you give us a little bit of a background, who you are, how you got here? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So... I am a scientist with 20 years of experience doing research in the lab, um, you know, and so what the heck does that mean, right? Because anybody can say that they're a scientist. So I have experience in virology, in cell biology, biochemistry, molecular biology, um, electrophysiology, immunology, oncology, probably more that I'm not thinking of. I was fortunate um, throughout my career to have been exposed to a lot of different um, scientific disciplines. And that was that was rare in the former industry that I was in where most scientists are highly specialized. And so it's something that I that I think gives me a unique perspective. And it's also something that I think should be more the norm. I think it's not good when you have scientists that are so overly specialized. So um, I like to point that out. My undergraduate degree is a uh, is in biochemistry and molecular biology from the University of Massachusetts, and my graduate degree is in biotechnology from Johns Hopkins. How did I get where I am today? So my last role was I was a senior scientist at a biotechnology company in the immuno-oncology space. And so what that is is developing antibodies to treat cancer. It's you know, trying to kind of activate the immune system to uh, target cancer cells. Um, and so uh, I think it was end of August, early September of 2021, my company, small biotech company, um, kind of did what pretty much the entire industry was doing at that time and rolled out a, a COVID vaccine mandate. And um, I filed a religious exemption 
and uh, they obviously did not want anything to do with that. And uh, I was pretty quickly let go. And since then, I've been speaking out, talking about the the state of science and COVID and lots of different things. And um, I just really appreciate any and every opportunity to kind of speak about this stuff and share the truth. I think I think we need more. There's not a there's not enough scientists out there that are willing to step forward. And I, I certainly understand why, but uh, if I can do my part, I'm happy to. And so let's talk about that. We've, we haven't had a, a, a person with your scientific background on the podcast yet. So I'm very curious to know, in your opinion, what is the state of science in the world today? <laughs> um, from everything I've seen throughout my career up until you know, certainly the last, I guess it's almost three years now, wow, um, with the COVID situation, it, the state of science is not good. It's, we're in a, we're in a situation where what I think has happened is science has become scientism. It's, be, it's been elevated as effectively the only allowable source of knowledge of basically our reality of, of anything and everything of, of health of, you know, and so in, in doing that, then we must in turn trust the science. We must appeal to it for, for everything. And that of course has led to a situation where it's been utilized to impose a lot of um, really terrible draconian measures like vaccine mandates and, and other things over, over the course of these past few years that, that were, you know, previously unthinkable and largely that stems because, again, you have this situation where people are just trusting the science, they're believing in the science without really understanding, number one, what does that mean? And number two, you know, can science really answer all of these questions that we're expecting it to? I would suggest that it can't, although at one point I, I believe that it could. Um, and then you have a lot of issues with within with science where it turns out the data. So a lot of people just think that they can go and look at scientific papers and, and things like that. And they can just believe the, the data that's coming out. Somebody says, Oh, I've, you know, published this new novel finding about, you know, whatever, you know, a virus or, you know, something and that you can just trust that. Well, it turns out the, the majority of papers can't be reproduced, and it's more than likely that the majority of findings in these papers are false. So you really have this systemic issue that is where where the the great preponderance of the data that's coming out is highly questionable at best, but yet the, all of the scientists think there's nothing wrong. You know, it, it's not that this is not known within science, within industry, within academia, but they just go along and think okay, this doesn't mean that anything that the data, the findings are invalid or that there's um, flaws within the system, you know, so nothing changes. And then we go through a situation like COVID and we see kind of the the fruits of that where this, where you can push whatever information you want to drive a narrative and force people to do crazy things. One of the things that we try to get to on this podcast, and I and and we feel that 
folks who are practicing true medicine also try to do is get to the root cause of an issue. So as we explore the root cause of where science is today, how do you feel we ended up at this point? Well, I mean, I think science is, it definitely is something that has evolved quite a bit over the last 100, 150 years and just like medicine has, um, and it's it's definitely um, something that has a lot of good uses, but the problem is when you try to utilize it to explain everything, it's going to fall short, and, um, you know, we, I mean, it, it just, it's, the problem is we're not recognizing its limitations and understanding um, where and where and when it should be used, how to use it properly, how to properly apply the scientific method, things like that. And that's really at the, the, the kind of the root of true science. It's getting to an understanding of what science really is, what it should be, you know, the study of naturally observable phenomenon, studying, experimenting to understand their causes, most of the time in science now, especially in, uh, you know, what is going like pharmaceutical science or medical science, you know, biomedical science, it's looking at effects because you're studying the effects of drugs or things. You're not, you're not really doing true science. We've, we've totally drifted away because, and I think this gets down to when science became a business, when it became for profit, you, you lost true science because nobody cared anymore about under you know truly doing it the right way understanding things it was all about how do we get to develop new drugs and get you know and and so we've just drifted further and further away from what is true science and knowing how and when it's supposed to be used and leaving it at that and not trying to plug it in for everything when you when you started to look at the science in quotes of virology as a scientist who understands the scientific method, what were the most glaring issues right off the bat for you? Yeah. So, I mean, from my own personal experience, I, one of my first jobs following my undergrad degree was, was studying HIV. And I went into that as a young, naive scientist that had certain preconceived notions from my schooling of, you know, the way that this should work. And, you know, then I was quite shocked when I saw actually how it did work, and what they actually did in, in these labs. Um, and so, you know, I started to immediately dig in and, and at, you know, ask questions and do my own research and came across lots of people that were questioning virology. But just as I, things like I would have thought, if you're studying a virus, you would be studying an isolated virus from a patient sample. You want the most direct thing you can from somebody that's sick. If you want to know what's causing them, you know, you're, you're trying to understand that and then in turn design or develop, you know, kind of therapeutic interventions or whatever. Um, that's the way you would do it. But it turns out that's not the case because you can't get enough from patient samples, which course, then that begs the question of how does it make you sick? But um, so then you wind up using all of these 
crazy artificial systems, these cell culture-based systems to generate basically virus stocks, which are really synthetic. They're, you know, um, basically like pseudoviruses. They're not really mimicking anything that may or may not be real in nature, right? Now you're totally into a whole different realm that you can't exactly, you well, you really can't at all compare back to to nature, but yet that's what's used to study and to draw conclusions and to say this is what we know that viruses are. Or then, of course, you know, as we've heard, we do these crazy isolation experiments, again, using these cell cultures and these uh, artificial models, and then claim that we've isolated a virus or we know that a virus is there because we've used some indirect assay to measure some activity or, you know, used an antibody to detect what is believed to be a viral associated protein. And then that's how we know there's a virus there. But there's so many flaws with that. Um, that for me, I mean, I just saw red flag after red flag and it only got strengthened, I guess I would say, as, as I went throughout my career and got in and got into other scientific disciplines and saw that this is this is not even just virology and you know this is something that's uh pervasive throughout scientific research um but it really it, it also at the same time kind of solidified my beliefs about virology being problematic just that it's all so you, it's more than that <laughs> you so you were having these suspicions and these doubts uh, before even the the pandemic, before uh, coronavirus and um, and COVID nineteen, mm-hmm. would you would you ask questions? Were there others that had the similar doubts? Yeah. So in this, when I was doing HIV research, I also did some work on um, some hepatitis H HCV and I think maybe HBV, but HCV de- later on when I was in pharma, but. So when I was doing HIV research, this was a, it was a really small lab, and um, it was a lab of a pretty highly um, touted like infectious disease doctor that had studied actually at NIH under Fauci, oddly enough. Um, and so it was kind of interesting. I mean, here I am, young scientist. I'm doing research myself, trying to figure out what in the heck I'm, you know, this actually is that I'm doing. And I come across all these people that are questioning the HIV AIDS paradigm, the Peter Duesbergs, the David Crows, the rethinking AIDS, I actually signed on to the rethinking AIDS thing. And, um, and then came across the Perth group. And, um, I, I remember, I think at one point I did actually ask my, the, the PI, this infectious disease doctor, um, some questions about it. And, you know, he, he was pretty strong in his beliefs, but he, I was surprised that he didn't really have a huge issue with me researching myself and trying to understand more about what, you know, different sides of these arguments and what was, what was what. And, you know, he then even expressed to me some concerns he had about how the data, the demographic data was being represented because it was being spun to, you know, suggests that the whole thing was that they were trying to drive this narrative that HIV was going to explode in the in the heterosexual population and just become this massive pandemic everywhere. And of course, that was not the case at all. And but it was just how they were manipulating the the demographic data to make it look like it wasn't occurring in pretty much 
largely a single discrete population when it really was. And so he would talk about stuff like that. But, you know, I don't I don't think he really wanted to poke too much into the paradigm of whether or not the virus, you know, because with HIV, the people questioning it, some were saying it's just a harmless passenger virus. It's not causing AIDS all the way to some that were saying like the Perth group that we don't even know. We don't even think it's been isolated. You know, does it even exist? Um, like, you know, but I, I, that was kind of interesting. I was surprised that he didn't just in, entirely shut me down right off the bat. But you weren't, there were no other like coworkers that you could turn to and sort of nudge with your elbow and go like, does this make sense to you? I, I did have, um, there were two or three or so other of us and I, and I probably bounced questions and stuff off of them. And, but you know, they, they weren't questioning it as much, as much as I am. I've, I found I'm, it's not that I don't want to come across that, that no scientists question anything or that, you know, this idea that like they're all in on it or they're, no, they're all just blind to these things. I've definitely worked with scientists that have had similar questions of questioned things similar to the way I have, but most don't just don't go to the level that, that I have, I guess would be the best way to say it. Well, you've, you've gone to that level almost out of necessity, haven't you? And, uh, you yeah. know, you've stepped away or lost your job and now you see the, the dangers of continuing down this path, science continuing down the path it's continued because we will lead to more situations like you found yourself in and others may find themselves in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, somebody recently asked me, you know, would you ever, do you think you'll ever find yourself back in, in that industry or in, in scientific research or whatever else? And I just said, quite frankly, I, I don't, I don't see it. I don't just the way that the, the, the state of scientific research is now the system, the way, I mean, what, what I know that it is and that I don't see pharma as a, you know, pharmaceutical medicines as a viable path forward to achieve health. Um, not to mention the fact that I pretty much, when I didn't comply and was fired, you know, nobody wants to hide. They're still in that industry pushing the the vaccines and mandating it in a lot of places for, for hiring. So, I mean, that would X me out of most of it anyway, even if I, if I did want to go back, but I, I really have no intention uh, at this point of, of doing that just because of what I learned throughout my career. And now what I'm, you know, as, as I've had this last year and a half, almost kind of to reflect on that and learn even more. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I just, don't see that as being what I what I initially thought was a situation where I could do some good through, you know, developing, helping to develop new drugs and stuff like that. I just don't, I don't see that as the, the right path anymore. When someone who is uh, as, as steeped in the industry and the background and the knowledge as you are, comes up against this, you know, this, this reality that things aren't perhaps what I've been taught or the, the way that they have been shown to me or told to me that they are folks, folks, we see it now, like cognitive dissonance is, is real. And often folks will just shut down and not, not continue forward. I mean, did you have that point? Did you have like a, okay, things are just melted and now I'm in this new world where 
virology is not what I was told it was. And even all the, you know, the, the foundation of your education and your background as a professional is up in the air and in question. I mean, where, where do you stand there as far as like the cognitive dissonance goes? Well, I guess I kind of largely blew that right out of the door. You know, like I said, when I was a young scientist with studying HIV and I, and I started to realize that even that was, you know, based on a lot of faulty assumptions and stuff. And, you know, that kind of drove me throughout my, the rest of my career in pharma and biotech to just continue to probe and ask questions. And I never really, you know, accept everything that was being told to me. But at the same time, you know, I guess I did fall somewhat into this, this idea that even though I, I knew that there were a lot of problems with science, I knew that, um, you know, there were things that were wrong on different levels that, but maybe it could still be fixed and maybe science was still, you know, science was still the, the main or the best answer to a lot of problems or whatever. But, you know, once I went through this situation with, with COVID and the vaccine, that really kind of just eviscerated any remaining thoughts about that because it, it, sh- it kind of showed me once and for all their true colors. Like they, they you know, they, they only care about basically making money, which, you know, as I really, you realize what these, these industries are, but, and if they're going to force people out and good scientists who have dedicated their whole careers to doing this stuff, you know, what, what do they really care? I mean, what is this really about? Um, and I start to realize that, you know, this isn't just about science having all the answers. It's, it's valuable, but it's not everything. And, um, you know, so yeah, I think it's been quite a, a journey definitely since COVID, but it's something that, you know, I've walked my entire career and then, but just didn't quite want to go all the way, I guess, but COVID kind of finished it off. <laughs> and how does that feel? It's great. I mean, it's been really liberating <laughs> to be on the outside now, to be able to speak about it, um, to not have to face, I guess, the the pressure and the anxiety of being inside in that situation. I mean, it's you, it, you know, the threat of of retribution for speaking out and for pushing back too hard is is real. I mean, I'm sure that I lost opportunities because I was a thorn in people's side. You know, I would keep pushing and asking questions and they knew that I was the guy that was going to, if, if there were issues, I was going to be vocal about it and I would shoot down somebody's, you know, big chance or whatever, you know. So um, it, it's great not having to worry about that stuff anymore and to be able to talk about it. There's even more that I would love to be able to talk about actually than I have already talked about but like I said, I'm I'm involved in a legal challenge against my former employer. Once I'm through that, there's there's more in terms of um, you know, what I would call like either negligent or fraudulent behaviors that I've observed that were really, really quite bad that, you know, that to really drive home. I've talked about problems with science and with drug development and things like that. I, I there's things that I'd really like to get off my chest that would really, really drive home some of these points, but I just unfortunately can't do that yet. 
Yeah, understood. We look forward to that uh, becoming a reality. Mm-hmm. Mike, folks like like Tom Cowan and and Sam and Mark Bailey are they're having come through the allopathic training as you had uh, essentially, you know, the the traditional education in in medicine. They're now starting to question the very foundations of cell biology and how the immune system works or our understanding of how or what we how we thought it worked are you, are you at that place as well where you're really questioning the entire premise as it was taught to you yeah i mean i i keep a very open mind and i'm willing to evaluate anything and and everything and i think it's absolutely worth revisiting these these foundational premises right um i i don't necessarily i'm not of the stance of let's just tear it all down. Everything is fake. Let's just burn the place down and start from scratch. I mean, um, I don't, I don't know that a hundred percent of what we've learned, what we've been told is totally wrong. And I think it's, but it's, 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 it's a sizable challenge to sort through that and to understand and to really critically evaluate these, these premises and these foundations and say, you know, what, what, can we believe or trust and what is really just on quicksand, you know, what is really, uh, you know, faulty. Cause a lot of it is just kind of built up on a house of cards of uh, unchecked assumptions. Yeah. Well on that, on that subject, one thing that just occurred to me because words are so important is and you, you, you hear trotted out in, in this, community of viruses don't exist is one way of saying it right oh, should we just stop using that word the word viruses <laughs> yeah yeah well right <laughs> i mean that's that's a great question like why do we yeah because words are, are so powerful and we don't realize yeah. that and clearly the way that that word has been used for so long and how it's been basically entrenched in people's beliefs systems from when they're born almost because they're told that viruses or germs are the cause of when you know any time they get sick you caught something so it has this clear stigma and you hear oh novel viruses but you know yeah that that evokes a clear response probably on multiple levels and um yeah so i think it would be great if we could do away with that in fact i mean when we look at the origins of the word it really just you know, virus was Latin for poison, and right. that's really what we're what we're getting at. I think with a lot of this is we're we're being poisoned by a lot of different types of toxins on different levels, and you know, yet we want to boil it down to one tiny particle that may or may not exist, and say that that's the cause of all the problems. <laughs> yeah, well, a friend suggested maybe we should start we should substitute toxicology in for virology Mm -hmm. essentially what you're saying. And it's interesting in light of the toxic event that just happened in Ohio and all the inevitable um, illness that will follow in in its wake. The fact that it's not being discussed through the light, through the lens of what we're discussing, toxicology, it's, it's one and the same. It's, it's every insult to our well-being seems to be a toxic insult, and that can manifest uh, through a physical substance, you know, a, a toxin, or of course, as we've explored, um, trauma as a as a toxin, uh, or you fell off your horse, as Tom Cowan likes to say. <laughs> um, but 
it's just interesting because people say, well, viruses don't exist, but here's what a virus is. It's like, well, you, you can't have it both ways. <laughs> <laughs> so what are these particles in, in what, what words would you, would you suggest in their, in their stead? If such particles were, if to such exist? particles were to exist, you know, are they one phrase I've come up with is blaming the scab for the work of the knife. Are these just like, you know, sc- scabs, these well, things that were we're claiming as, as viruses right it, so one of the things that i've identified that i think is an issue through not just virology but potentially in, in oncology and, and other places too is scientists have identified what are potentially the after effects of something occurring and then attributed them as the causes yeah and you know it's like so with with cancer the big paradigm is about mutations, these spontaneous mutations that drive oncogenesis, that drive the tumor formation that lead to the out-of-control growth. But you could also turn it around and say, well, you know, assuming you believe mutate, you know, what's the, any any of that story, but that the mutations are derived from, as a, res, as a result, or response to whatever's causing the tumor, they're not actually causing the tumor, you know? Yeah. And, and I kind of like something moral on that, although, I mean, I'm, I'm, my thoughts on cancer are evolving too, but um, but with, I think you could potentially look at that in a similar fashion with these particles too, if they did in fact exist. That you know, we still, even if you proved, even if you were to come up with a strategy to isolate these particles, you could get a good pure isolation and study them. That doesn't mean that they're causing disease, right? So I mean, we're we're multiple steps away just. You know, we're saying there's not evidence that these things have been identified, that they've been isolated, that they exist in nature. But even if you were able to identify them, there's another whole step of trying to prove that they actually cause disease, that they do anything that's been attributed to them. And like, I mean, let's say you did identify them. Yeah, maybe they're maybe they're an after effect or maybe they're doing something else or they're just they just happen to be there when somebody, you know, who knows? But um, yeah, to just, we, in science, we, they want to find, obviously there's a necessity to find something that's a cause that can be targeted, right? Because it's all about developing a, a drug or a vaccine or something. So whether or not it's true, if you can find a cause that makes sense, that's druggable, that's suitable for most scientists to say, okay, we're good. Now we can move forward with this. Another principle that really resonated with me, something that I I picked up from Tom Cowan, is just this idea. It seems very obvious, but I think a lot of people, layman people like myself, people who aren't scientists or medical people, the idea that as soon as you remove a piece of biology, for lack of a better term, from the body, that's a major thing. I mean, that's that's the major thing. And, and as mm-hmm. we take for granted, well, like they're in a lab, it's in a Petri dish, it's they're studying it. Uh, what is it that's even in that Petri dish once you remove it from the living system is no small thing. Absolutely. This is a point that I've, that I've been trying to bring up. Um, and it's something that, you know, is, is actually debated within, within labs. I mean, I talked and kind of debated a number of my former colleagues about this kind of question in the context of cancer, but it's valid for, for really any kind of science where you're trying to study something that's, whether you're evaluating something that supposedly is 
causing a phenomenon in, in a human being or you're studying it in an animal model, once you take out a sample, a tissue, whatever from that animal, you've, you've changed it. It's not the same thing that it was when it was in that living organism. And when you do animal studies in say oncology, you do the, you usually use mice. And when you want to take a sample out, I mean, you can take blood or certain things while the animal's still alive, but a lot of times you want to look at tissue. You want to look at the tumor or other tissue to try to, you know, if you see what you believe is in effect, uh, you've, you've managed to inhibit the growth of the tumor or whatever. You want to look at that and analyze it and try to come up with some story to explain why you're getting that, why your drug is causing that effect. So, but in order to do that, you have to kill the animal. You have to put it down and then remove the tissue. Well, you kill the animal, that that changes the system considerably. And then you take the tissue out. This is called X. So we have in vivo, which means in life, ex vivo, which means out of life. You're taking it out of a living organism to study it. And then in vitro is anything that's like just in the tube, in the dish. This, this, that's the cell culture stuff. So, but anytime you take anything out of a, a, li- a living organism, or if you have to put that organ, you know, if it's an animal model and you have to put the animal down and then remove tissue you're considerably changing it and you you just you can't say that whatever you observe is exactly what was happening when that animal was live alive and whatever you know in the sample was in the animal and yet most scientists just they don't know how to what to do with that so they just say okay well this is the best we can do that's what right. a, a lot of the answers when i probe with this kind of stuff it's like well, this is the best we can do, so this is what we do. I mean, but it's ridiculous, right? Because if you acknowledge that you're changing these things considerably or potentially considerably, and that's not even accounting for whatever processes you're applying to the samples to do whatever the experiment you're doing or to, or to, to look for whatever you think is going on there, like with a sample that you're taking to do, say, electron microscopy, where you're you're preparing it such that you can make these thin slices and then you have to fix it, harsh chemicals that basically kill the tissue and arrest any metabolic activity. And then you stain it with heavy metal stains, right? And so those procedures then are going to have other impacts. You're further changing the tissue considerably. And that's the case throughout with any kind of experimentation, whether it's in vitro or in vivo, anytime you're, or, or, or sorry, ex vivo, where you're manipulating samples and tissue, there's always lots of steps that impart a lot of stress, whether it's mechanical, whether it's when you're doing these centrifugations where you're spinning the samples at create at high speeds that imparts physical stress on the sample that def- that changes it can break things down can, or it's chemical stress. If you're treating these samples with harsh chemicals, like they do to stain these things for different kinds of microscopy or imaging. It's just more and more impacts that, that drive it further away from what you believe is going on in, in the organism in nature. And it's hardly ever, if at all accounted for the fact that what you might be seeing could be totally artifactual, or at least you could be causing artifacts that could be misguiding you, even if there's something in there that's, that's real. I mean, nobody accounts for it. It's, it's, it's kind of mind. It's funny that 
I just had this vision of, you know, if you put me or you or Ben in one of those like amusement park rides that spins around and you stick to the wall, like, okay, (laughs) as a kid, you might survive that. But if you do that to me now, I would certainly walk out and I would probably vomit or fall on my face. And it's, it's pretty analogous to (laughs) if you do that to any tissue, there's going to be a cause and there's going to be an effect. So it's, at some level, it's that simple. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's a great way of thinking of it. Cause that's, <laughs> that's pretty much like what you're doing with the centrifuge, although even faster, imagine you're spinning even faster and then. <laughs> right. But the, the alternative Mike is to try to study this phenomena within a living human, which has its own problems and limitations. Yeah. I mean, well, obviously with, in the case of the of viruses or supposed viral particles, I mean, they're, Submicroscopic, or if they was you know so like you wouldn't there's no way right now to even visualize them without significant manipulations outside of a human so there's there's certainly no way to visualize them inside of a human there's nothing that can get that you can utilize inside of a living human that could get you to that magnification um but yeah for anything else that you're trying to study yeah i mean that there's obvious significant moral issues but you know it's not to say that there's not clinical trials where they try to do things and to collect data and and i i don't think that that's right but it it does create a significant question because you're you're using models in the lab animal models and in vivo systems cell cultures and things to attempt to try and recreate what you believe is going on in a living human, but they, you, you can't possibly do that. I mean, they're, they're, it's just not the same. And I could go into lots of reasons why that is, but, and quite frankly, what a lot of scientists are realizing is that these models aren't predicting in any way, shape or form, what is going to happen when you, if you're developing a drug and you're testing it in these models, you're, you're attempting to try to replicate what's happening in the human and predict what's going to happen when you go into a clinical trial. Well, it turns out they're not predictive at all. I mean, in many cases, you have these this data that you generate, this preclinical data that enables you to file all the regulatory stuff to get in the trials. And you can make it look like you have all of this activity, like your drug is doing amazing things in a, in a mouse model. It's shrinking tumors left and right. You go into the clinic and the drug does nothing, you know, and I've seen that so much. And now scientists are finally going, okay, well, yeah, these things aren't, they're not telling us anything. So then why are you doing it? (laughs) Why do we keep using these, these terrible models that, but, you know, again, this is another situation where science is kind of like, well, this is the best we can do. And it's what's required to get us into the clinical trials. And, you know, again, so when science becomes a business and about profits, biotechnology is profiting off of innovation. So it's all about, you know, how do we move this along and build value and generate profits? Well, we don't worry about like, are we actually doing this in the most ideal way or actually replicating something that truly exists? And that's where you get into some questionable territory. <laughs> Mike, I I respect that you said you're not you're not ready to burn the whole thing down, meaning like the foundations of scientific knowledge 
but it sounds to me like science itself right now is irreparably broken. If it's not, like, what does it take to fix it? It sounds like we're moving money. Mm -hmm. Simple. Is that it? Simple as that? Uh, Well, yeah. I mean, the, the funding, yeah, is what is driving. And, and of course the, the profit aspect is what is driving it down this path of destruction effectively. Um, because you can't do anything. You can't question anything. You can't interrogate, do real science largely because you can't get funding for it in many ways, in many cases, or resources. Um, if I want to go and write a grant to say I want to look into, you know, whether viruses exist or do, you know, a study on proper isolation of viruses, whatever, it's it's never going to get funded. I mean, so that's why this stuff just hasn't happened. And there's a lot of good people out there that believe, and, and I was one of them, that, you, you know, you could fix the system from the inside, but... I, I just don't see how that's possible anymore. I think, like you said, it's it's irreparably broken. And um, but then the question becomes: Do we tear the whole thing down and start from scratch, or um, the other option is perhaps build something new in parallel right. that you know is what you know a preponderance of people who are questioning this believe that is more in line with true science and respecting what it can and can't do and trying to really stick to the core of of real true science and you know i I mean it would be awesome if something like that was was possible but you know that kind of remains to be seen well it seems like at a grassroots level if if i mean just having these conversations of questioning the paradigm and knowing that another paradigm is possible is certainly steps on this new path i i would argue but, you know, is the funding there? Is you know, is it is it being built up as a competitive industry yet? Um, maybe uh, certainly not at the level of the behemoth which the the current paradigm exists at. But I I I feel like it is happening because of people like you having the brave like bravery. I think is is probably the most important variable, like having the courage to step out, to blow a whistle, and to speak your truth um, creates a new reality in its wake. Yeah, I mean, it certainly leaves me optimistic. Although, I mean, it's it's not a small task to to go up against the the current paradigm and uh, attempt to to create a a new system, whether it's funding, resources. I mean, or simply getting getting you, the information out. Um, we need a new system of peer review and and publishing data and information that's entirely different as well, because. I've seen where some people have been able to raise money or, or, or do certain experiments in, in different ways, but then they struggle with getting the information out. And then if it's not published or peer reviewed or whatever, then people are like, well, I don't really care. Right. So I think you've got to, you can't go part of the way. I think you got to go the whole way or none of the way because you've, you've got to be able to make it so it's convincing to people who are entirely sold and embedded in this old paradigm that this is a valid way forward. I had this idea. I don't even know if it exists or if anyone else has, has thought of this or tried this, but um, Mike and I had had these conversations 
uh, you know, just months ago about the funding, how most of the funding comes from private industry, pharmaceutical industry. So we're never going to get like good studies on vitamin D because, you know, where's the money in that? Uh, citizen like a citizen scientist.org like a nonprofit we've got folks who will donate their money to like GoFundMe's for people they know in their family who are sick like what could we get a grassroots system citizen science.org where people can donate their money to this organization and the organization is run by like a board of trusted folks like yourself or the Zach Bushes who determine what science we're going to pursue these are the methods and they're just fully transparent about how they're going to pursue it and then what studies you're funding by donating to this organization. If there's enough folks out there who are aware of the brokenness of the current system, they might be willing to go, you know what, I actually have these questions myself and this is an organization that's willing to ask those questions and they seem to be using the, the proper methodology and they're transparent about everything they do. Like I, I just sometimes I go, I, that has to be possible. People will donate to a GoFundMe. You know, why won't they donate to something like this? Like, let's fix the system from a grassroots, you know, grassroots uh, mm. pr- approach. Yeah, I, I think that would be great. I mean, it's I'm pitching. I'm pitching you right now, Mike Donio. I want you to be the president of the board of this organization. No, I don't know. I, you know, it's like a, it's like a pipe dream. But I'm like, a, you know, it has to. I think all the change has to be grassroots at this point. I don't see it be, mm. being top down at any point now moving forward. I don't see top down change happening. I feel like it's got to be bottom up. Yeah, yeah, I I wholeheartedly agree, and I I think that's an awesome idea. And I mean, at this point, like it has to just start somewhere with with something like that. And it it's not. I would never even think about like going toe to toe with the behemoths of, of industry or anything like that. Because quite frankly, who cares? I mean, you'd be doing something different that would hopefully be based on true, sound science. And um, you know, it it may not have value for everybody, but I, I could see it having a, a large enough appeal and value for a, a, a solid enough group of people that it would be worthwhile. And like you said, could, could probably be achievable, but there's obviously a lot that would need to go into it. A lot that, yeah, a lot that would yeah. need to go into it. Let's switch gears real quick, Mike. You mentioned in, in your videos numerous times, applying your God-given gifts to what you're doing now. Um, you also mentioned filing religious exemption. Um, curious to know what, what role faith plays in your life. Yeah. So I've always been what I would consider to be a, a Christian, but kind of never, you know, it was more of kind of just through my upbringing, going to church with my parents, things like that, not really forming a concrete set of beliefs myself or really, you know, picking a particular direction. Um, And I kind of came shortly before COVID. So the end of 2018, um, I lost my dad to pancreatic cancer very quickly and kind of wound up at a crossroads where I was like, okay, either I'm, you know, because I was frustrated and angry and it was like, I could have gone one way and said, there's no God, I'm walking away from this. I don't, you know, but for whatever reason, I went the other way and pushed in more. And from then I've just, my faith has grown and strengthened. And that played a significant role in when the vaccine mandates and the vaccines came out. And I mean, obviously there was a huge element of my 
as a scientist with all my experience doing research and actually trying to understand what you know that that played into my decision too but my faith was was a huge element of that because and from going through what I did with with my dad and kind of having that tested there knowing that that was something that I could that I could stand on that I could that I could have faith in making a decision a leap like that and not having to fear what was on the other side because I think so many people are just frozen with fear not you know either by the threat of the virus or by what do I do if I'm not going to do who and what I am now and my faith and my beliefs allowed me to say okay I I don't have not only do I not have to fear the, the virus or the fact you know this stuff but I I can I can get through and get to the other side of this and I, I know it'll be I know it'll be okay I know it'll work out and I've managed to connect with so many incredible people along the way that I just can't I, I mean it's just happened in an amazing way of it's been an incredible journey I, I don't know but I've I've my faith has remained strong and I I I lean hard into that and I don't push my beliefs on anybody else, but I'm but I I'm happy to to talk about it because it's something that is powerful for me. I I appreciate that a lot, Mike, and I appreciate you sharing that. I think that's these conversations. You know, we're told don't talk politics and religion at the dinner table, uh, and I feel like that's that's part of maybe why we're in this mess is because we don't have those conversations that around some of the most important topics in our life. You when you were talking about science, you you mentioned that you came to a realization or you're at a place now where you feel like science can't answer everything. Science can't solve anything. And I wonder, does then faith sort of fill that gap? Yeah. So I think it, it then comes down to things like faith, theology, or, or, um, uh, um, why am I drawing a blank? Philosophy. I couldn't Mm. think. (laughs) (laughs) Um, things like that, that, are other sources of knowledge. And in fact, really a lot of discussions that we wind up having around science and whether we believe this or that, or this is, you know, when it comes down to trusting the science and all this stuff, wind up being philosophical or having a philosophical basis anyway, yet, you know, we keep being told to appeal to to the science, but what we're doing is scientism, which is like I've explained. And so, yeah, it, when, what we, the thing is, is realizing that there are other sources of, of knowledge, theology, you know, and philosophy, considerable, and in many ways, more so than science. And science is formed, a lot of scientific theory beliefs are, are formed by philosophical underpinnings. And so, really looking at well, what is science and what what are its limitations, it kind of shows that it really can't, we expect it to answer so much more than it really can. And then at, in the, at the same time, we've taken these other things and they've been marginalized and said, well, they can't give you anything that's fact. Only science can. We can't know anything for sure. Something like... um religious belief theology is just your own personal beliefs it can't you can't know that you know only science only 
that is the only thing you can know for sure, except for you can't. There's no absolute truth in science. But, you know, so it, I think understanding that there's more to more tools, knowledge for us to utilize to understand the nature of our reality is critical and to stop just this over-reliance on science. You, you mentioned that you felt like uh, religion is something that's being marginalized. And I wonder if you could get into that a little bit more. Like, what are the ways that you see religion being marginalized or perhaps under attack? Certainly the rejection of the filing of your religious exemption is one obvious example, but are there others that you see? And what do you feel is the, the state of religion and faith in our, in our world, in our society? Yeah. Well, so that's become a whole beast unto itself because, especially in the West, organized religion is basically like a like any other company. It functions as, you know, these are 501c3 organizations that are connected into the, the government. I mean, and so you saw what happened when COVID came. They rolled over on all of the, you know, when things were locked down, they shut their doors. When the vaccines rolled out, they held vaccine, cl you know, clinics and stuff like that. And you're like, how does that, you know, <laughs> this is supposed to be, you know, a, a, a church and religious institution and you should have certain belief systems and things. And, you know, then when people come and say, I want to file a religious exemption, and then the companies appeal to that and say, oh, well, the church is all closed down. All the heads of all the churches are saying, this is fine to take. They're all holding vaccine clinics. Why should we care about your religious exemption? Well, right. So the whole entire system in terms of the religious system has been totally changed and stacked against people. And, you know, I, I, I mean, I look at it kind of in the, a similar way that I look at, um, at, at pharma, like organized church is no better than organized medicine in a way. Like, it, or it's largely, you know, organized medicine has become the same as organized church, I guess you could. And it, to me, it's, it's my Christian beliefs. It's so much more than just, or, and, you know, organized religion, religion, you know, as a kind there's so many problems. I hear people that get frustrated when you talk about being religious because there are a lot of problems and connotations with organized religion, institutional religion. And Unfortunately, what that does is it causes people to walk away from any beliefs and instead of realizing that all that stuff is just a facade, it's just something that's created by men, again, to create systems and structures to kind of you know, impose their will on you. And that's really not what at, what's at the core of, of these beliefs. And, um, you know, I think we've seen that shining through with COVID where they've utilized these religious institutions to, as part of the, the, the hurting of people, um, you know, into these horrific measures. Mm, the coercion measures. Yeah. yeah. Um, we, we, I think we're mistaking the, the person's affiliation for an organization rather than the personal relationship you have with God, which is really the thing that is you know, should be sanctified and protected. And that's all that really matters. It's not what church necessarily I attend or who is the mm -hmm. head of that church or organization. It's my personal relationship with the creator or, or what I call God. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mike, as we're coming up on an hour here, I wanted to ask you a question that we ask all our guests. Um, 
what are your non-negotiables, those daily habits that you do to tend to your terrain? Um, well, for me, this is this has been an evolving process as I've continued to learn more, especially since since walking away from the the industry that I was in and getting trying to free myself entirely from and and I and I pretty much and I am and my family too um were entirely sworn off of any kind of pharmaceutical interventions whatsoever but I've really tried to embrace a much more uh natural situation in terms of of diet and nutrition and and exercise so um I'm very critical of what I put in my body and making sure that you know where it's coming from and that it's not well minimally processed um we I've found a great farm that's in the state that I live that does regenerative farming they have all grass-fed finished pasture-raised animals and raw milk and all that sort of great stuff and my my kids love it and um so that's become a huge part of our kind of routine is is bringing really good wholesome natural food back into the house to try to restore our health in that way and i'm just you know i continue to learn more and more about different ways to build and support the terrain and so i think it's just for me it's going to continue to evolve and i'm going to continue as a scientist testing different things out with myself <laughs> and my family and see where things go and then, Mike, what's the best way for the audience member to learn more about you and follow your work? Yeah, so I have a Substack that is where I'm, I'm putting out a lot of my content these days. It's called Still in the Storm, so stillinthestorm.substack.com. I'm also on pretty much any social media um, these days. You, if you look at under my name, Mike Donio, so it, on Twitter, I'm at Mike Donio. Um, I am, so like I said, I'm putting out a lot of, or I'm trying to put out a lot of content on that still in the storm, science related, but that was kind of, again, as the title says, to help people find their, their still, find their peace in, in amidst this crazy storm that's been raging all around us these last three years. Um, and so that's kind of my personal thing. Then I'm also working on a project because... I look at this as there's two sides to this coin. There's one is about going out and telling the truth and illuminating the public to what is truly going on behind the closed doors of the labs and the boardrooms and in, in, in science today. But another aspect, but once you do that, then we need solutions so that we can try to make sure that this doesn't happen again, because I'm looking to, to the future, you know, on, to some extent, or maybe <laughs> all of it. I don't really care what happens to me. I want to try to pave a better path for my kids and so on and so forth. And so I'm looking for looking at solutions. And so what I've come up with is is called Science Defined. And it's basically a way to try to make science more approachable to anyone, regardless of your background. And it really centers on the idea that the biggest obstacle to accessing science is the terminology, because it's a whole separate language, much like legalese, law, or um, other things of that nature. And so if you can learn that language, if you can build a foundation in that terminology is what I want to do, then you can apply that. And a lot of, I don't want to say that it 
all become so simple and basic and easy to understand because that's not entirely true. But it it's much more easily digestible and accessible once you get that barrier is so considerable that for many people, especially people a lot of people that I've talked to, they just turn they would just it's much easier just to find someone like me and say, "What can you tell me about this?" And I'm like, "Haven't you looked into it?" You know, and um, so I think that would be hugely empowering to people whether you're you know whether you're at the level that I am and we are where we're accepting and asking all these questions about virology and stuff like that or you're maybe not quite as far down and um to kind of really show them what what this science is that they're being told to accept instead of tell them no don't do this show them this and hope that they can see why it is so problematic but also so maybe they they will start to make better decisions, like help people to see what's in their medications, read product inserts and prescribing information and see, and then they'll go, oh, shoot, this is what this is, you know, or to understand what are, are the cra- all these crazy ingredients that are in the food that's on your shelves. And maybe once you get a better understanding of that, you'll realize this is not what I want to be putting in me. So, you know, that's kind of the my, my thinking is make this more, this the idea of science, not wet lab research, but to be able to understand it across different kinds of, whether it's a paper or again, all, all these other things and bringing that forth as a solution. And so that's, that's what that's about. I have a website, sciencedefined.com. I'm in the process of building that website, but if you went, if you were to go there right now, you would see kind of a placeholder that says, welcome to sciencedefined.com. Beneath that is a banner that has links to all of the social pages. So if people wanted to go and follow those, I'm planning to try to go live with the website and launch this pretty soon. So you'll see, you'll be able to, that's probably the best way to get updates for now. Um, And I'm really excited about that. That's beautiful. That sounds like an an incredible endeavor and we will put the link in the, in the show notes. So Science to find, science to find.com still in the storm. And then of course the future president of the <laughs> citizen.org. We'll, we'll keep, we'll keep working, working on that. Well, uh, Mike, Mike Donio, you are a light in the storm. We're so delighted to have brought you onto the podcast. So thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. This, this was great. I really appreciate it. All right, we're in the pineal room. This is the after party. Party on, Garth. Party on, Wayne. <laughs> party on. Hey, so we don't trust the science, but we can trust the scientist, right? <laughs> well, especially the one that walked away from the big paycheck. I mean, that sort of seems to be the bottom line. Like when push comes to shove, what are we talking about? We're talking mm. about having the courage to walk away from the comfy job and the comfy lifestyle and all the comfiness that the big fat check brings uh, and to take that leap of faith to say, this isn't right. This doesn't sit well with me my intuition says uh, to evacuate. And that's exactly what he's done. It's wild. Yeah. Drawing that line in the sand, drawing yeah. that line in the sand. Yeah. And saying, I, you know, no, there is no amount of money. I will not compromise on this. And there's no yeah. amount of money that will, um, that will get me to compromise. 
It's crazy. And, and a lot of those same arguments bubble up. Like, well, certainly this whole, like, they all can't be in on it. Like that whole line of mm-hmm. thinking, like, all mm-hmm. these doctors and scientists, like, really? Like, if it was that messed up, wouldn't more people be walking away sounding the alarm? But, you know, uh, it's all, it's like a massive um, s- systemic quagmire because it's not easy to put food on the table and to like make it through the day and the week. And just, just to like get through the week, you rely on your job and the security of what you do. And to go up against that behemoth, um, it's really not a small thing. So it's not like everyone's in on it. What everyone's in on is making a living. (laughs) So it's, it's a, it's really delicate territory to start prodding people at uh for obvious reasons and i guess the follow-up question for mike around how we fix science and or his answer building a parallel structure is for the folks who go into doing the work within that parallel structure how are they funded how are they getting money we have private industry you've got big pharma that's clearly funding a lot of the science but we also have government agencies that are taxpayer funded that are funding some of the science or funneling that money to the private industries. So a lot of this is just coming from our pockets and right. our taxpayer S- money. Subsidies, right. Yeah, subs- that, so, you know, w- when we talk about building the power structure, yeah, it's, it's funny. It's also sad and, and because we don't, we, we think we have this say in how our taxes get spent, but it's so far from, you know, the check we write or what comes out of our paycheck uh, to where it then, then ends up. Like we don't, you know, we don't really know that budget committees throw these numbers out and put these numbers together and how much of it goes to the military, how much of it is going to the NIH. And then what does the NIH do with that money? We just, we just know what we're, we do what we're told, right? We're just complying. Okay. This is what gets taken out of my paycheck. Or if you're a you know, private business, this is what I have to pay into the system. And that's it. You know, we think our vote is going to somehow translate into you know the money will be funneled where we want it to, but that's just not the case. No, if it, I guess what I mean by it's a systemic issue. It's a systemic issue, but we do there is money because it's just going to the taxes. So if we could find, if we could it's find an important a- reminder, it's an important reminder, and there are people who are are trying to educate on ways to extricate from the system. And I guess it's easier said than done. I'm a long way from understanding how that's done, but it's certainly a a worthy pursuit. Yeah. Yeah. So what I want folks to do is to extricate themselves from the system. So you stop paying your taxes to the United States of America. And what I want you to do is start funneling some of that money towards citizenscience.org. Uh, Mike Donio, future president of the board. (laughs) 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 That's not true, everyone. (laughs) For the the record. Just, just, I mean, when I was going through my head when we were, I mean, obviously it does sound like fight fire with fire, like build the parallel structure, but I don't know how necessary it is to like have a formal, like big organization because I feel like so much of the, the work, like the research is personal it's like Mm. autonomous it's like what works for you trial and error certainly share information share resources share anecdotes i mean this whole thing like well like the idea of an anecdotal success story 
is already has like a it's smeared. Well, that's just anecdotal. But like, what are human beings but storytellers and stories? And what's an anecdote? But it's your story of what worked for you, what didn't work for you. So I I feel like we need like a repository of success stories more so than another like peer reviewed system of papers. But that's that's maybe just me, the podcast host, as opposed to Mike Donahue, the scientist who that's that's the world that he knows is like peer review, actual science, back it up with proof um, and like to formalize a system. Yeah, I mean, I, I, obviously there's great value. We do the testimonials. We do the you know, t- terrain transformations. These are anecdotes. These are stories. What worked for that individual to overcome what was labeled an autoimmune disease? And I think that is one way that we accrue knowledge and certainly experience and wisdom. But the scientific method is, is a little more rigorous, isn't it? Yeah. Um, identifying the independent variable, the dependent variable, eliminating all other variables. Um, and I, and, and it's the application of that to something like cell biology, our understanding of cell biology. I don't think anecdote gets us to an understanding of what constitutes uh, the the cell. And in order to do that, it does require, you know, money, lab equipment, the people who are going to run those experiments. So, so that's what I, that's what I envision. Yeah. I think like if you're going to rewrite the textbook, yeah. you gotta, you gotta do your due diligence. People like Bear Landau talk about like, you know, he's a permaculture farmer and a bioterrain advocate, but he's like, everyone should have a lab at their home. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, wow. Oh, it never even occurred to me that I need a lab here, but there is obviously there's power in, in knowledge. Yeah. If I, I think of uh, Will Padilla Brown and yeah. getting started and understanding. Totally. Yeah, understanding uh, mushrooms, and you know he's got he's got microscopes. He's doing a lot of this like genetic work, and yeah. he he seems he's one who uh, seems to do great work making that feel accessible to others who want to get into mycology. Right. Um, and he certain it certainly looked like he he took to it really quickly. Uh, but I I think about him as someone who you know started small. And then just let his curiosity take him where it took him, and then and then discovered the technology that he needed to work into it. Created a business that supports the expansion of his research and his understanding in this field. But he he, I look at him and I'm like, that's that feels like a citizen scientist. He's like a exactly. the, the epitome of a citizen scientist who's doing amazing work and also able to fund himself a business, employ other people, and spread yeah. this amazing message about the power of mushrooms. That is. A perfect shining example, and he should be on on the board of directors for your your crowdfunded citizen scientist. There it is. Thank you. Yeah, we're we're uh, we're filling seats. (laughs) I kept thinking. I almost brought this up, but the conversation moved on. Uh, You know, because Mike Donio has literally been in the trenches, so Mm. to speak, like in the lab with the lab coat and the microscopes and and the mice with the tumors and. I was thinking like these these poor fucking mice, first of all, right? Mm. And then like the obvious question to me is like, well, how do they get the tumors in the mice, right? That'd be an interesting uh, understanding. But then I thought like, well, who's doing the research to keep the mice tumor free? Nobody. All you want, all all they want in the labs are the tumor mice. And I guess that's the case in point. It's like, how you know, who's doing the research that... that, that that keeps the, the most prevention. Mice. Yeah, the prevention we're really of good. We're, yeah. we're actually really good uh, in the civilization at creating tumors. 
exactly. that's what we've discovered. You want, hey, you want a tumor in a mouse? I can get you a tumor in a mouse. <laughs> I can get, I, you, I get you one right now. I can get you a tumor. I can get you a hundred tumors in a mouse right now. Yeah. Oh, you want it living? You want it dead? I got you. I got you covered. I got them right in my yeah, trunk. Such a good question, Mike. We, yeah, we got to bring Donio back on and ask him that. How are they, so how are they creating the tumors? All right, so they know how to create a cancer. They must be able to then uh, <laughs> apply the that tumor. knowledge. Yeah, yeah we got to create some tumors so that we can oh take a God. synthetic pharma drug to try and shrink the tumor. It's so, just that premise alone should make you scratch your head and go like, what is wrong with this picture? But we don't. We take yeah. this shit for granted. Well, these yeah. are scientists. We defer to authority. That's the way it's been done. And then here we are again, chasing our tail. It's like this chicken and an egg scenario. Mm-hmm. It was interesting when, when you got uh, into talking about faith and then you even brought up that line, maybe after we stopped recording this idea of leap of faith, it's just like mm-hmm. a cliche expression that we use, but like the power therein and this whole idea of like big pharma, big religion. And again, mm-hmm. that like this, these spiritual paths when, uh, when push comes to shove, which is really what 2020 did to our culture as push came to shove um it's it's about sovereignty and autonomy and like you know it's it's you and your connection to source it has really nothing to do with anything bigger than you and then of course you you your your children and your family and your community are people like your circle of awareness and who you care for but it's another example in that quinian philosophy of when things get too big, bigger than the tribal model, um, you know, corruption seeps in, like we lose focus. It just gets, it's unwieldy and, mm-hmm. and, and then, and ultimately unhealthy, I think. Yeah. That the, the more distance between you and that thing that governs you, there's just so much, there, there's far less transparency. You can't be transparent. It's too far away. You can't see into it. It's too far away from you. It's abstracted. If, yeah. It's abstracted. Whereas if you keep things within a community, a tribe, a small town, it's all right there in front of you. No one can hide from anything. That's Everything it. gets found out eventually. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, big religion. I like that. Yeah. I like and that. What else that, is it? That's what it is. It's synonymous yeah. with all these things, these you know, big oil, big pharma, big government, big religion. It's ick. Yeah. We need, I, th- this feels like part of the mission whether it's my private mission or certainly my private mission to reestablish this relationship with God or, or the source, whatever that is, but also, also for this podcast too, like uh, uh, allowing others, bringing others into this conversation around faith and one's personal relationship, first and foremost, that personal relationship with, with God or the creator or source and the place that that has in your overall well-being and health. I mean, we're talking. We're already talking about the prismatic health and that mind, body, spirit. It's there. It's spirit. So, what does that mean to you? What does that mean to us, you and I, Mike? And then also, what does it mean to everyone else? And also, let's talk about that. Let's not be afraid to talk about that in our relationship to that thing, whatever it is, rather than pushing it, you know, into the shadows or not talking about it at the dinner table. This is probably the most important conversation you can have or one of the most important conversations you can have with yourself and with others in your in your immediate circle. And it has been it has been marginalized and and I don't think it should be. I think that's to our collective and individual detriment that it's been marginalized. Yeah, here here. I mean, not only has it been marginalized, it's been uh it's like 
a lot of these, it's a stereotype, but like when, you know, I have kids, like a teenager and a 10 year old. And it's like, when you look at what's available to them as entertainment, it's like the most base low, what term? Chakra. It's like the, it's just like not high minded. It's mm. literally speed and, and sex and violence and like literally the games these days are like how much weed can you sell it, it's a video game about like selling weed and it's like it's funny i think my kids are able to see it as like this is ridiculous like the, the there's like some it's just so over the top that they're like this is a ridiculous thing that we're doing look i'm selling weed in a video game and i'm 12 um but it's also like it's so fucked up that mm. that's been normalized mm-hmm. right uh, not that there's, again, I have no problem with weed, but it's just like these stigmas um, that get normalized for younger and younger children such that, and it just, that's what becomes built in in our muscle memory as we get older is the sensibilities that speak to our lower, baser desires are what become normalized. And it doesn't even occur to you that you can have a higher-minded journey, a life of the mind, a life of the heart. It's just devalued and deprioritized. And when you see it happening in real time, you know, we sound like a couple of old guys here saying like, ah, sex and I'm violence, not the one saying it. You're the, you're the one saying it. But you're the one saying it. You're the old it's, guy. It's, <laughs> it's just so plain as day. It's just plain as day. And uh, I guess when people start poking holes in like progressivism, that this is sort of part and parcel of that. It's like, well, it's progressive to be like sexually liberated. It's progressive to to have an open mind. And to, and, and, and this, these things are true. But as you've often said, it's like the pendulum swings so far. It swings so far that we lose sight of what's on the other side of, of the arc. And... Uh, and it's detrimental ultimately to what I am now perceiving as a spiritual journey. Yeah. How well do you think this video game idea would sell? You you play a character whose goal is to reach nirvana. So your character just meditates. You sit it into various lotus poses and it meditates. And that's it. That's all I, it does. What do you think? Do you think Brandon Gilbert would have an opinion on how this game should be set up? What what would what would Brandon Gilbert uh, advise Ben? Based Put on his re- based yeah. on his research, yeah. um, for, the, <laughs> yeah, for this video be, game, yeah, he would say you'd have to play it in a cave somewhere in the Himalayas. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, it's not going to work. <laughs> yeah, no, I no, I hear, I hear you, I hear you on all those fronts. Well, because there's this whole conversation about like New Ageism and like following into this like false light and like that is an interesting conversation because uh, evidently we're in a spiritual battle, mm. right? Like, and so what nobody said, if this is indeed true, it's not going to be an easy battle, mm. right? And so like, there's no going to, there's not going to be any quick fix or like easy solution. Um, Cause people are very quick to say, you know, these yoga retreats in Costa Rica where you're like, you know, meditating and doing yoga all day, but like snorting Coke and drinking margaritas at night. It's like, is that really a spiritual journey? I, it, it's easy to poke holes in this new ageism, but I still maintain, I think you do too, doing some goddamn yoga and breathing and meditating. There's a lot of good that can come from that. Right. And so people are very easy to swipe down um, in very broad strokes. What is perceived 
as sort of the mainstream manifestation of spirit work but again nuance it's like the individual uh is in control and these practices of just building mindfulness and quiet and stillness and mike donio still in the storm Mm -hmm. uh, that i think is is lost in the conversation a little bit I would agree. Yeah, yeah, folks like to tear other things down. When something becomes mainstream enough, you get the next crop of people who want to tear that thing down, and then they prop up the new thing, which is just as bad and as riddled with, you know, nonsense and problems. But at the same time, no one, no one introduces nuance into any conversations. They want to paint things in these broad, general strokes, and that doesn't work either. So, uh, yeah, what is the answer? It just comes down to you. You know, yeah. what is what is working for you? What do you want out of this life? What matters to you? And how much of what you think matters to you is actually because you've done the internal work to, to figure that out? And how much of that is because you've just been listening to the voices around you that tell you what matters to you? And these are important questions to ask. These are big questions. And uh, that's what what I'm so tickled by is that so much clarity has arisen for me by, I guess, narrowing my focus down to what creates health, like the, 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 what, what this podcast is, right? It's like a health and wellness exploration. And it's amazing when you really start to peel back the layers and we've had some incredible mentors, right? Uh, I always reference Tom Cowan and, and the Baileys, these people we we look up to, but like, it's amazing to see that we're sort of all in it together in, in a lot of ways, different places in the journey and different backgrounds and educations. But so much of my understanding of how the world actually works has come into focus because I've doubled down on what is real with regards to health. And again, prismatically, it, you can't separate any of them. And it's really validating. I remember like, you know, this whole like, this whole disruption or um, subjugation, or I don't even know what the word, like the environmental movement seems to have been, like that was my thing. I remember someone once said, like, if you're going to be an activist, like pick your thing and like dig your heels in and do that thing. And I, at the time I had picked, um, for lack of a better term, I think I picked climate, right? Because that's sort of where I was at. Because to me at the time, it was interchangeable with being um, ecologically minded, having an ecological consciousness. I don't even like to use the word environmentalist um, because as Daniel Quinn points out, like as soon as you declare that you're concerned with the environment you've removed yourself from the environment (laughs) you're like you're an onlooker like well i'm sitting in this room and out my window are some trees and some some wind and some birds that's the environment and you've you immediately forget that you are it too so i like i'd like covell's uh ecological consciousness um phraseology but that like i'm saying earlier that was what i committed to and i it steered me wrong. Like my premise was wrong. Um, so this, with this new premise, you know, what creates health, what is healthy, it encapsulates all of it. It encapsulates ecology. It encapsulates spiritual well-being. It encapsulates how I want to raise my family and the decisions I make and how my career is unfolding. And it's only breeding, um, 
positive results so far? Is it like all, you know, yellow brick road and roses? No. Do you know, I still like have triggers and anxieties and stresses about money and judgment and, and the shit people are saying about me? Sure. Like, you know, this is real. This is just like being human and like evolving and, and, uh, and healing, you know, and, and, and gaining confidence and, and all that. But it's just really special that, and I think that's what I've, I've said in past episodes about like how important this podcast has been to me, because it's not only like something to do, something to look forward to, like an intellectual challenge, um, but it's actually informing the way that my life unfolds moving mm. forward. And um, I don't know what could be more beautiful than that. And I don't know what could be more beautiful than to witness it, Michael. Brother Mike. Brother Ben. Yeah. I, wi- I see you. I witness you. I witnessed your <laughs> journey. That's what I'm saying. I mean it. I mean it. You laughing. I mean it. I mean it. It's fun. It is. It is a lot of fun. I appreciate you being on this journey, and to everyone out there, we appreciate you being on this journey with us. And uh, keep sending in the notes and let us know how you're doing. If there's guests that you think we should bring on the show, shoot us an email. We're uh, we're all ears. We're open to it all. Remember that uh, nothing you heard here should be taken as medical advice. As neither Mike nor I are medical professionals. And remember that you are light, you are love, and you are your primary healthcare provider. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you on the next one.